BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. A new study out of the General Accounting Office, the GAO. This is arguably the the least political branch of the executive, uh, part of the uh, executive branch, the, the GAO, found that millions of families with a worker earning the federal minimum wage are living in poverty. About 20% of families with a worker earning the federal minimum wage, $7.25 an hour, are living in poverty. Now, that, I, it, keep in mind, this, most of those families have somebody else in the family who's not working the minimum wage, you know, or who you know, or ha- have additional you know, wages coming into the household. While household income is just slight, I think it's about 3% above where it was in 1980, individual incomes are a little more than half of what they were in 1980. Uh, And, you know, it's really simple. You have more multiple people in houses going to work and all this kind of stuff. So Bernie Sanders has uh, introduced legislation. It's called the Raise the Wage Act of 2017. It has 30 Senate co-sponsors and would hike the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Most importantly, index it to inflation. And by the way, that hike would take place over about a seven-year period. Uh, It goes up uh, to $15 by 2024, so not a lot of immediate impact, at least on the businesses or the people. Sanders says the gap between the richest Americans and everyone else is wider than at any time since the 1920s. Instead of giving huge tax breaks to millionaires and billionaires, we must invest in critical programs that help working families make ends meet and lift millions of Americans out of poverty. Well, if he's talking about raising the minimum wage, I'm all in. But there's this enormous subsidy. It's like, how is it that minimum wage employers get away with paying minimum wage? Because you and I are paying tax dollars to provide minimum wage workers with what, it, what is necessary to stay alive, right? You know, with, with uh, the earned income tax credits, uh, which is basically the government giving money to low-income people, with food stamps, with housing assistance, with educational assistance tied to poverty. Uh, you know, now I, I am in favor of all of these programs as long as the federal government refuses to require that businesses, if they're going to get all the wonders and benefits and freebies and goodies that you get running a business, don't take the responsibility of paying their workers a living wage. And that's why I think that, you know, frankly, here's, here's, the, here's the question. Should the, should the government, federal and state, by the way, both, both federal and state governments are doing this, continue to subsidize low-wage employers. I guarantee you, if these, if these social safety net programs, um, you know, uh, Medicaid uh, or the parts of Medicaid that are available to low-wage workers, if Medicaid went away, if housing support went away, if uh, earned income tax credits went away, if food stamps went away, if these programs went away, employers would be feeling the heat. Uh, employers would be feeling the heat hugely. And 
and you know they're not going to put up with that. So you know they so so. But why are we sub subsidizing low wage employers? I don't get it. Why can't we just say, hey, you you want you want limitations of liability? You want to be able to deduct your three martini lunches? Pay your people a decent wage. On the line with us, Julio Rivera, the exe the editorial director at Reactionary Times, columnist with Newsmax, Right Wing News, and Politichicks. Uh, ReactionaryTimes.com is his website, and you can tweet him at Oh yeah, it's Julio. Hey, Julio, welcome back. Hey, Tom. Um, I you know couldn't help but um, come up with a couple of things just listening to you right there. First of all, uh, employers aren't necessarily getting goodies. I mean, there are legitimate business expenses which are you know you're allowed to write off. Um, as far as you know, this country and the and the poor and the people that are in poverty, I believe, like you believe, that because we are a generally wealthy country, that we should have a social floor and we should help those people. But what we should do is we should require some semblance of a work requirement in order for people to qualify for these programs. Yeah, but that that that, sure that, that, that assumes work. Julio, Julio, on drugs, hang, hang on a second. Like that. Julio, that assumes that work is available. What do you do when capitalism fails, number one? Well, that's and, no, but let me tell you something. The reason capitalism is failing is because, you know, because of the way that our taxation system is now. The tax reform bill and bringing down corporate taxes is going to cause a large amount of hiring, which is going to create more right. opportunities for people. No, it's going to cause a lot of, a lot, a lot of distributions of, of dividends and things. But the fundamental question here, Julio, and, and, and yeah. I don't know if you and I disagree on this or not, is why do we have an economy in the first place? Because it seems to me that all of our decisions about whether we're, we're, subsidi whether we're subsidizing you know, Walmart by, by providing their employees with food stamps or whether we're choosing not to subsidize Walmart. And, you know, but all of those do come Walmart. down to You're one simple question, which is why, no, no, let me, work at Walmart let, let me finish my question, Julio. Work more. Julio, let me finish my question. I'm offering this mm -hmm. to you. Why do okay. we have an economy? The economy is a construct of government, right? Government provides mm -hmm. the, the, the dollars and a stable banking system. The government provides dollars and a stable banking system. Government provides the rules for, for a, an economy. You can't commit fraud. If you do, you go to jail. You do a Ponzi scheme. You do, you know, basic rules. So it, it, why does government create an economy? What's the whole point and purpose of government creating an economy? Well, that's kind of a, a kind of a loose and you know a kind of a, a, a crazy question there. Well, let me so, take so it. That's the way I put it, like Tom, right? And and I'm, I want to get to the gist of what you're what you're getting at. And you know, you had mentioned previously the Bernie Sanders-backed bill. I look at it like this. You know, these people, and we're talking about right now. Currently, we're in the process of trying to put forth some major tax reform. The people that you're referring to. Uh, here that are living in poverty or people that just, first of all, they don't even contribute to that system. They're not even paying taxes. But I would look at it like this. In order to score a win-win where everybody's happy, we have to have some semblance of bipartisanship. Why don't we go ahead and, you know, not give a 15% or $15 minimum wage, which I think is insane. That's just, that's unsustainable. It's going to create, it's going to crush jobs. It's not going to create opportunities for people. Why not maybe in, in exchange for the tax reform, maybe do a 10 to even 20% hike in the federal minimum wage? I mean, I would bring minimum wage up to close to $9. I think that that's something that's reasonable. Well, this was, Julio, this was, this was a lot of minimum wage jobs. But Julio, that was Obama's logic. Above minimum wage. So I don't think it's really going to make a lot of Julio, uh, that was, have a negative effect. That, on that was Obama's logic. And that's why he proposed, I think it was a $10 and 10 cent minimum wage, because it was right at the point where if you earn that, you no longer qualify for food stamps. It was just above that. And, and or maybe it was $11, whatever it was. I don't remember the exact amount. But, but the answer, my answer to my own question, why do we have an economy, is to benefit the people, right? It's not to benefit the fat cats. It's not to benefit transnational corporations like GE that do more business outside the United States than inside the United States. It's not to benefit Apple so they can keep $100 billion offshore. It's to benefit the people. That's why we have an economy. So if we're, if we're incentivizing businesses to do business, why are we why are we incentivizing them to pay crap wages? We have less than a minute, Julio. Well, we're not incentivizing them to pay crap wages. Sure we are. Me. We're subsidizing Employers them. Employers ultimately 
want the best production out of the people that they hire. And employers, and believe me, I know many, and I've been one at, at, at different times, I'm willing to pay for what I get. You get what you pay for. So if you want a good, productive, happy employee that's going to make you a lot of money, you will pay more. You will pay a premium for it. Low, uh, minimum wage jobs are there for people entering the workforce and people doing very menial you know, uh, low-skill work. But see, I got nothing wrong people, with I, I have no problem with menial work. I, you know, I think that all work should have honor and dignity. I, I, I this, this idea that there is menial work and therefore it's, it's deserving of crappy pay, it, it, it kind of implies there are crappy people. I, I just don't get it. No, Anyhow, it doesn't say anything about the people. It says what the, what the task is. It, okay. it only applies You can read Julio's task. stuff at reactionarytimes.com. You can. Thanks, Julio. No problem. Thank you so much, Tom. Yeah. So the, the economy, I, this, this is something that I think most Americans, not having taken civics classes, not having studied economics, and, and frankly, not having studied government in school, it's, it's, it's such a shame that, you know, since the 1980s, since the Reagan revolution, we've stripped all this, all this education out of our, out of our curriculum. And, and so people now are not taking civics classes anymore. They don't know how government works. They don't know the rationale for government. They don't know the history of government. They don't know how, how uh, uh, Tom, you know, Thomas Hobbes inspired and informed uh, John Locke. They don't know how John Locke inspired and informed Jean-Jacques Rousseau. They don't know how both of them, and Hobbes for that matter, inspired and informed Thomas Jefferson and led to the creation of this country and the standards and the ideals on which this country was founded. A unique project, by the way, creating a country not by saying, hey, these are the people who've always lived here because we had just killed them all off, or many of them, uh, you know, the, in, in one of the most god-awful genocides in, in well, certainly the, the biggest one in American history, uh, which we are, as a country, we have not reconciled yet. Canada has gone a long way in this direction. We have not really seriously even begun that process. We're just now having conversations about the damage that we did to people with slavery. And, but the, 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 this, this, this whole situation comes back to, and, and you know, why people don't understand the history of America, it comes back to why they don't understand the, the different, you know, the, the relationship between government behavior and corporate behavior. And it's that government literally creates marketplaces. I get it that libertarians and, and, and billionaires and Republicans like to pretend that there's this thing called the free market. They love that phrase because free is a positive thing. And when you attach it to market, it sounds like it must be a wonderful thing, right? It's a free market. There's no such thing as a free market. The, in, in its purest form, a free market would be pure barter, right? No government interference. Uh, you and I are next door neighbors. We make a deal. You're really good at washing cars. I enjoy mowing lawns. I mow your lawn every Friday or every Saturday. You wash my car. Now that's, you know, it's barter. That's, is that a free market? You would think so, right? It's two people, independent of government, independent of business, entering into a transaction without even exchanging money but it's still a, a business transaction, essentially. But what happens if while I'm mowing your lawn, I, I uh, mow down some rare and valuable plant that you have planted on the edge of your lawn at the beginning of your garden that you just love dearly? Or what if while I'm mowing your lawn, I, I uh, you know, run into your garage door and cause it to collapse or something? What if I do damage? Or what if while you're washing my car, you do damage to my car. And what if we can't come to a resolution about what that damage is worth and, and, and whose responsibility it is? Where do we go? We go to the court system. You either go to arbitration or you go to a lawsuit. That's no longer a free market, right? That's a regulated market. So the market was regulated right from the get-go. There's an assumption, a core assumption of fairness built into our markets. Or at least we assume that there's an assumption of fairness built into our markets. But in fact, because of uh, largely the Buckley decision in, in 1976, although there have been certainly numerous others, 
Corporations and rich people have been able to lobby Congress to, to, to change the tax laws, to change the incentives, to change the structures of our business deals so that we have greater income inequality right now than we had in 1929, which is not a good thing for a country. It nearly flipped us, either fascist or communist, and FDR took us down the middle road to avoid that. And right now, again, we've got, particularly on the fascist side, you've got voices being raised up. And so I'm saying, let's raise wages. Let's say to business people like me, you know, say to me, pay a decent wage, pay a living wage, at least $15 an hour or, or you know, something close to it. And that's by 2024, right? The Bernie's law doesn't even take effect until, I mean, it doesn't fully implement until 2024. Pay a, pay a reasonable wage or don't do business. It's really simple. Doing business in the United States is a privilege. It's not a right. You have to apply for a business license. You have to demonstrate you know, to, to uh, other people in the business world that you're credit worthy, that you're capable. I mean, nobody's going to you know, rent you uh, office space if, if uh, you know, they, they look at your credit report and they see that you ripped off the last five you know, landlords or employees or employers or whatever it may be. Why is it that we have skewed this thing? Why is it that, that uh, corporate income taxes during Eisenhower's administration represented a third of the federal government's income, and today they represent you know, less, than, less than a twelfth of the government's income? And who's made up the rest of that? Who's made up the balance of that? You and me. Why is that? Well, obviously, it's, it's the power of money to influence legislation. And this should not be. And one simple step to, to clean it up is to say, you know, yeah, okay, we've got all these programs that Republicans love to hate that subsidize the working poor. Why, why do we have the working poor again? What's wrong with menial labor? What's wrong with paying people a decent wage? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. What's wrong with respecting work? Even if that work is cleaning streets or being a janitor, that's work. That's worthy of respect. Everyone's talking about superfoods, those nutritionally dense foods that are especially beneficial to your health. Did you know that beets are one of the most important superfoods you can put in your body? They're loaded with important, an important nutrient that increases your blood flow, which increases your energy. But who wants to, be, he, to eat a pile of beets every day? Not most people. But now you can get the energy benefits of beets in a powerful concentrated superfood drink, Super Beets. Only Super Beets is made from crystals grown to exacting standards, then concentrated into superfood crystals. Super Beets promotes the body's own natural ability to produce healthy circulation for increased energy and stamina all day long. So if you want the benefits of a powerful superfood, call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeets.com. With your first order, get another 30-day supply of Super Beets for free, plus indicator strips to see how Super Beets is working for you. And free shipping. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeets.com today. That's 800-568-9889, the website tomsbeets.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. There, another piece of this puzzle, uh, you can find, there's a great piece, Alan Pike wrote over at the uh, Center for American Progress's blog, thinkprogress.org. And it's titled, You Can't Make America Great Without Killing the 401k and Bringing Back Real Pensions. And this is another piece of this. How do you create, how do you create a business environment that is, that is good and useful and healthy and productive for working people? And during the Reagan era, or before the Reagan era, we used to have pensions. My dad had a pension when he retired. He, he, he not only had Social Security, but, and I, I frankly, I don't remember the amounts involved. He told me once, but it was years ago, and he's, he's been dead for a while. But uh, let's say he was getting $1,000 a month from Social Security. He was getting whatever that was. He was getting actually a little bit more than that on his pension. So it was like, say, $1,100 a month on his pension. And between the two of them, he had a good life after he retired. And it was a pension he got from working in a tool and die shop for 40 years. But it, you know, if pensions were correctly organized and, and managed and all that kind of thing, he could have worked in 20 different places and it could have just moved around with him. Uh, from 1980, but, but Reagan 
And during the Reagan administration, they came up with this with the IRA and the 401k and all, all these all these ways ultimately to destroy pensions. Now, the reason, in my opinion, why the Republicans in the Reagan administration were promoting 401ks was not to destroy pensions, it was to destroy Social Security. If you could get everybody saving their own money and you could get a large part of America that had big savings accounts, then you could say, hey, they don't need Social Security. Let's just pull the plug on it. All right, that, that, there's no doubt in my mind, that was their end game. But what happened with 401ks and IRAs, you know, do-it-yourself savings plans, uh, but what happened was instead companies just started killing off pensions, saying we don't need to offer a pension as a benefit to our employees. They can do their own 401ks. And so, you know, after Reagan came into office, just from 1985 to the beginning of the Great Recession, Alan Pike writes for the Think Progress, U.S. companies eliminated a combined 84,350 separate pension-based retirement systems for workers. That's not 84,000 workers who lost their pensions. That's 84,000 pension programs, probably somewhere as small as, you know, 20, 30 workers, somewhere probably thousands of workers, no doubt. The results, he notes, of the shift have been dramatic and deadly. Americans collectively face a multi-trillion dollar shortfall in retirement savings. Six point, in 2013, it was $6.6 trillion. In 2015, it was $7.7 trillion less that retiring American workers have than they would have had before Reagan became president under the pension program. $7 trillion. Now, where did that $7 trillion go? It went to the top. It went to the top one-tenth of 1%. In higher executive pay, you know, d- distribution of profits, all these kinds of things. Uh, extreme poverty among women older than 65 went up 18% from 2011 to 2012. He writes, the shift from guaranteed pensions to year-on-your-own savings vehicles helped drive the U.S. economy back into its gilded, new gilded age of hyper-inequality right across the board. It was totally preventable, didn't have to be, and, uh, you know, this, this is... And, and, and so how are households dealing with the loss of $7 trillion? They put over a trillion dollars on their credit cards since Reagan. Over a trillion dollars. Which, by the way, before Reagan was actually tax deductible and no longer is. I mean, it's just mind-boggling the level of damage that has been done to us by Reaganism. It's mind-boggling. Mel in Malvern, Arkansas. Hey, Mel, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how's it going? Um, By the way, thanks for all the knowledge and wisdom you give out. Um, I have a question about something. Um, As a Democrat, I'm on board with a lot of policies in the Democratic Party. But increasing minimum wage is one that I, I don't see how it's going to benefit because... My thought is if we increase minimum wage, let's say $15, one of three outcomes is going to happen. It's either going to drive up prices. It's going to decrease the workforce because you have like four people making $7.25, and now the they pass the law, and instead of having four people, now there's two people making $15 an hour, and the management or the owner pockets a dollar and the third option is if if minimum wage increases then that's decreasing the distance between how profitable it could be to go industrial electronic and replace everybody with machines Right. I've I've heard all these arguments from conservatives, Mel, and and I understand them. And these are the main memes that Republicans peddle to to say, oh, you don't want a $15 minimum wage. But the fact of the matter is that we have a minimum wage. We are saying, and we have said since the 1930s, and everybody accepts this as as a, well, not everybody. The libertarians don't think there should be a minimum wage at all, and probably some Republicans. But we have we have come to the conclusion that if you want the privilege of doing business in America, there are certain standards that you have to behave within the context of. You can't cheat your customers. You can't cheat your, your, other, your other business partners. You can't, you, and you can't screw your employees. And we're defining screw your employees as paying them less than $7.25 an hour. 
And I would say that $7.25 an hour is screwing your employees too. Your assumption, the assumption of your three scenarios, Mel, is that there's no elasticity inside businesses and that profit and compensation to CEOs and stockholders is, is absolutely immutable and cannot be changed. And the reality is that when, and the third assumption is that somehow uh, wages don't drive the economy. That's probably the most faulty of the three assumptions that, are, that you're basing your logic on. The reality is that an economy is driven by demand. People going out and buying things. The principal mechanism of demand in, a, in an economy like ours is wages. And, and in fact, is the wages of the bottom 50% of the income category, because uh, of the income levels, because the bottom 50% spend 100% of what they make. And in, and in many cases, they're spending 110%. They're putting money on their credit cards it just, to, just to get by. So when you raise wages for people at the, at the bottom half of society, what you do is you inject enormous stimulus into the economy. And if you look back at the 34 times the minimum wage has been raised since 1935 when it went into place, every single time over the following three years, you see a major stimulus to the economy. So if you raise the minimum wage, the three scenarios that you described have never happened in the history of the minimum really? wage, right? We've never seen employment go down as a result of raising the minimum wage. We've never seen a loss of, of, you know, of, uh, of workers as a result of raising the minimum wage. Instead, what happens is that the economy gets stimulated, the economy grows. Those minimum wage workers are actually the only job creators in the United States because they're creating demand. And then entrepreneurs, people like me, I started you know, seven businesses in my life and built up and sold off five of them. People like me will come in and say, hey, there's demand for this in the marketplace. I think I'll provide to that demand. I'll supply that demand. And I have to figure out a way to do that in the context of paying my employees at least $15 an hour. That is not rocket science. That's not all that difficult. And, and so, you know, Mel, it just, you know, the three scenarios that you described, there's, there's, they're, they're, they're popular myths that Reagan promoted, that Art Laffer promotes, that, that uh, you know, uh, Stephen Moore promotes and others, but literally they never have happened. Instead, what happens when you raise the minimum wage, you stimulate the economy, which creates more employment. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Yeah, um, anything to what you already beautifully laid out from the very beginning. But, um, you know, the four freedoms were fought against by the Republicans of the time, and FDR uh, not being like a politician, like a Republican, actually, you know, he bent. And um, he gave up like a national pension plan, and uh, health care, uh, you know, was not uh, part of it until much later. I think they wanted to get all these things, you know, the, what was necessary right away. But I think two-prong approach, you know, um, yes, we need to change the structure of this society and our understanding of economy and politics, and you could hang all of our political life on the four freedoms, and that would really just solve so many problems. But on the other end, you know, when you talk about human freedom, uh, there are, you know, things at the bottom that could be done uh, through uh, what they call libertarian socialism or anarchical socialism. And this has been a, you know, um, Noam Chomsky was a big proponent of it among a lot of people from about the mid-19th century and even uh, to today. Uh, Gar, Gar Alperovitz uh, and his, uh, the New Economy Coalition, which was uh, based on the, the ideas of Schumacher, and I think you're, you're well aware of, of some of this uh, yeah. yourself. If you know you, you're very well versed in uh, in economics and economic history and political history, or uh, po political economic history. So you know, libertarian socialism, I think, is something that I think is really been untried, uh, but a very interesting idea. And uh, it's, it's done in small, you know, in a little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, I mentioned A New Economy, uh, which was a documentary uh, done uh, by Gar Alperovitz. And yeah, I know, I know Gar. John, John, we're out of time. I'm sorry, but we'll have to. Please bring this You're up You're listening again. to Tom Hartman. Mike in Marietta, Georgia. Hey, Mike. You used to live in Marietta. Yeah, hi, Tom. How are you? I'm fine. What's on your mind? 
Yeah, I was, um, I'm thinking about this debate on the minimum wage, and I'm really, um, I'm flummoxed by it, because I, like, I think most people, believe that people deserve a living wage, and I think we would desperately seek for many ways to achieve that. However, at the same time, I, I am struggling because I feel that there's really no better method uh, from a top-down perspective of having a way of allocating a society's resources than capitalism. And you know, when you put the uh, wheels of capitalism in motion, uh, the entire productive uh, aspect of society is organized um, by the private sector. Not necessarily. And they're Mike. driven. Mike, capitalism well, well, cannot exist without government. Government has to define. It's just like it's just like you know a, a, a football game can't exist without a rule book and a bunch of referees. You can't have capitalism without government acting as basically the rule book and the referees. Otherwise, it falls apart. That's the problem I with doing business. I've tried doing business like I tried doing business in Uganda once. You know, it's impossible. You've got to bribe everybody in sight, or at least you did back in the 1980s. And and uh, so capitalism can't function without government keeping things, you know, good. I, com I completely agree with that. And I think one of the most egregious and apparent current failures of capitalism is the lack of enforcement of the antitrust actions right sure. now. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's outrageous. And what we've had is also a failure within the, uh, the governance structure of the cap so-called capitalist companies. We have boards of directors that are completely complicit with the management structure to continue to work in a circle of deceit so that only they profit at the expense of everybody else. Right. It's amazing. I'm sitting here listening to how, how we're going we're gonna to lower taxes and all of a sudden this is going to be great for the American people. American corporations are rich. Yeah. They, have, they have cash everywhere. They're richer than they've ever been before. They don't even know what to do with it. And, and so to think that putting more stimulus is going to help anything, it means nothing. But yeah. my question to you is this. So say I have a company and my, I make um, brakes for cars, okay? Right. And I'm sourcing them over in Thailand because they work at one-tenth of the labor rates that I can get here, and transportation costs are low, dollars cheap, so I can import it for nothing. Are you going to impose on me a restriction and a mandate that I then create an American uh, factory to with American workers to create these breaks, maybe my next generation of breaks? Um, or, or do you continue to reward me for, with all my record profits by making breaks overseas? Right. Here's, here, I, I don't understand how to solve it. Yeah, well, there, we're the, pretty much the only country, developed country in the world right now that hasn't figured out how to solve the, the conundrum that you just described, Mike. Um, in in uh, 17... 91, Alexander Hamilton presented to Congress a paper called uh, Alexander Hamilton's Report to Congress on Manufacturers in America. And uh, I reprinted it in my book, uh, uh, Rebooting the American Dream. And what he pointed out, he came up with an 11-point plan to build an industrial country. And the first step of it was tariffs, was saying if somebody wants to import something that could just as easily be made in the United States, we're going to put a tax on that import. And the second was subsidizing industries that export or that develop new products. So if, if somebody invents something new, we're going to give them patent protections. If, you know, if people are bringing new products to market, if it's, if it's particularly a product that's essential to the security of the United States, we're going to subsidize them in, in, in various ways, patents and copyrights being the principal form of subsidy. But he went through these 11 steps, and, and George Washington got those put into place by 1793, and that's what turned America into the largest industrial powerhouse literally in the history of the world. China adopted those policies in the late 80s and early 90s. They literally ripped off Hamilton's plan. The, the difference is that because of the, the World Trade Organization, NAFTA, all these other trade deals that we got into in the 19, in principally in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. All of these trade deals basically made us take down our tariffs. We, we had average tariffs that were running 20 and 30 percent in the United States from George Washington's administration until Ronald Reagan's administration. Reagan started cutting the tariffs and they started going down really substantially. They're down to the average tariff now in the United States is about between one and a half and two percent.
on manufactured goods. The Department of Commerce still maintains a list of 27,000, as I recall, different tariff categories, right? Rolled steel, flat steel, pig iron, all kinds of things. And so we still have tariffs, but they're pretty minimal and they match pretty much other countries around the world. But what we didn't do is we didn't do a value-added tax. A value-added tax is a tax at every step along the manufacturing. You know, you know, building a car door, small tax. Put that door on the car, small tax. Paint the car, small tax. Every time you improve the value of something, there's a small tax on it. And to use Germany as an example, the VAT tax in Germany is 17%. If here in America, and, and it's only supposed to be paid by Germans, that's the theory of a VAT tax, a value-added tax. So if I, as an American, say I'm, a, say I'm Tesla, right, and I want to sell cars into Germany, when those cars hit the German border, there's a 17% tax added to them because there's no VAT tax in the United States. If they come from another country with a VAT tax, no problem. But if they come from the United States, there's a 17% tax added. On the other hand, if I'm an American and I want to buy a Mercedes from Germany, there's a 17% discount on the export of that, of that Mercedes. Because as an American, I don't have to pay VAT taxes. If you've ever visited foreign countries and bought anything of value, you, as you're leaving the country, there's that VAT tax refund window by, by your checkout counter. That's to get your taxes back because you're not a citizen of the country. So basically what Germany does is they say, if you want to import something into Germany, you have to pay a 17% tax. And if you want to buy something from Germany, we're going to give you a 17% subsidy. That's, a, that's the equivalent of a 34% tariff which was the standard tariff around the world and in the United States before Reagan. So, and Germany's not unique in this, by the way. The tariffs in, in Taiwan are around 16%. The tariffs in China are around 15%. The tariffs in Japan sometimes are over 17%. Uh, all, every other developed country in the world has done this, has gone to this. The EU is based on this. We're the village idiots. We're the only ones who say to American corporations, you can rip off our workers, you can go overseas and make your products, and you will pay not an extra penny. Mike, thanks for the call. Excellent question. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you. One of the questions that a lot of people are asking is why does Donald Trump behave the way he does? And I think this is a reasonable question. You know, Bob Corker this morning talking about how um, essentially toxic Trump is, how he had been asked by people in the White House to intervene. Now, Bob Corker was or is chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So arguably within the Republican Party, he is the senior official, the senior guy when it comes to international relations. I mean, it would be Corker in, the, in Congress, or at least in the Senate, and uh, Tillerson at the, as Secretary of State, and arguably um, uh, Nikki Haley over at the UN. That's basically our foreign relations face to the world. And Corker is talking about being asked by people in the White House to change things in the White House, and then he starts talking about World War III, that, that Donald Trump is leading us to World War III. But I think that there's a, a somewhat bigger and, and in some ways somewhat smaller picture here that we have failed to identify, and at least explicitly. Nobody wants to just come right out and say it. But I'm going to. Donald Trump is a racist and a, and a bigot and a sexist and a misogynist, period. I mean, why did he start off his week going after the black widow of a slain black soldier? Why, is, why can't he let go a slight from a black member of Congress? Representative Wilson, why, why, why did he have to go after Myesha Johnson? the gold star widow of uh, Sergeant Dave, uh, David Johnson. Why did he kick off his presidential campaign by talking about how he was going to go after brown people from Mexico? I mean, the, the, the list actually is quite substantial. Why is he going af after black NFL players day after day after day? Why did he go after black ESPN anchor Jameel Hill? to the point that, you know, got her a two-week suspension. Why is he going after Megyn Kelly? She's a woman. See, it's not just black people Donald Trump doesn't like. It's women as well. For In Donald Trump's world, women are objects to be grabbed, to be used, arm candy, that kind of thing, but not fully human beings. 
And the same with people of color. I mean, this is a guy who grew up with his dad running apartment buildings in Brooklyn where they were, he and his father were both explicitly preventing people of color from renting from them. This is where this guy started. And he, and, and, and he said his, his personal Vietnam, he didn't go to Vietnam, but he had a harrowing experience that was just like Vietnam. What was that? Having sex with all those women in the 60s and not getting venereal disease. Yes, he said that. Why did he go after the mayor of San Juan, Carmen Yuling Cruz? Well, yeah, she spoke poorly of him, but she's also female and Hispanic. Why did he go after Kazir and, and Ghazala Khan, the, 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 the couple, well, the, the, the husband was the one who spoke up first uh, at the Democratic National Convention, former lifelong Republicans. Why did he go after them? Because their skin's darker than his, because their religion is different than his. This guy is a bigot. Now, Nate Silver, over at 538, he was trying to figure this out. You know, why does Trump do this stuff? How does it help Trump that he lies about a gold star widow? And why does he hang on to that lie? Some think that he's playing three-dimensional chess or four-dimensional or eight-dimensional chess. You know, he's doing this to activate the white racist base in order to get Republicans elected in those states where you've got a large contingent of white racists, which is pretty much every state in the United States, and, and therefore there's, quite, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think so. I think he's just a bigot. He's bigoted against women. He's bigoted against people of color. He's bigoted against people who are not Americans. And, and in the case of Puerto Rico, he's bigoted against people who are Americans because in his mind, they're not really Americans, they're Puerto Ricans. But Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States. These people have U.S. passports. They're U.S. citizens. It should become a state. The same with the U.S. British Virgin Islands. Why is Puerto Rico not a state? Because the Republicans won't allow it. Why won't they allow it? Because Puerto Rico consistently votes Democratic. Same thing with Guam. Same thing with, with uh, U.S. British Virgin Islands. These are all U.S. territories that could easily become states and should have representation. Why doesn't Washington, D.C. have representation, for example? You know, our license plates in Washington, D.C. say taxation without representation. Why is that? Because even though the city of Washington, D.C. or the District of Columbia has more people in it than several states who have two senators and members of Congress, is that it's majority black. And it's, and it's, and it's largely Democratic voting. Even, even many of the, most of the white people in Washington, D.C. vote Democratic. Republicans, we can't have that then we might have a representative country. So anyhow, Nate Silver was trying to figure out why, you know, he, he went through all these different scenarios over at 538 about why Trump would, would start his week this week, why he would start his week off by going after a grieving, pregnant, mother of two, soon to be three, widow, of a soldier who died in what was apparently a botched operation that was botched by the Trump administration. Well, number one, of course, obviously, you know, it, it takes the focus away from the botched part of all that. Trump really, you know, I, I mean, he saw what Republicans did around a, a uh, botched response to a raid in Benghazi during the Obama years a botched response, by the way, that might not have happened if the Republicans had not cut funding for security for the State Department. But that's a whole nother discussion. He saw how Republicans politicized the death of four Americans, uh, you know, an ambassador, a couple of contractors, and, 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 a, and, a, and, a, and a State Department employee. Uh, he saw that, how that was politicized, and he said, you know, I can't let them do that to me. Niger is not going to become my Benghazi. And so how do we, how do we direct attention away from it? Oh, let's, let's go after uh, Maisha Johnson. Now that's, that's one of the more common theories. It was one of the theories that Nate Silver examined, but he looked at it and he says, you know, this, this doesn't explain it. There's, there's, there's too much political risk associated with what he's doing. There's no, there's no, well, Nate Silver just ended up scratching his head. 
And I think that's because Nate is a fundamentally decent guy. And we all, you know, we look at other people's behavior. And, you know, if we don't have a, a wide range of experience interacting with people who are on the bizarre end of the spectrum, we tend to assume everybody, you know, basically puts forward, you know, exactly what they're doing. Nate Silver came to the conclusion that Donald Trump must be either irrational, incompetent, or bigoted. Well, he's not irrational. I mean, he may seem that way for, to you or me, but there's, a, there's an absolute rationality to everything Donald Trump does. It comes back to his need for constant love and approval and his dislike of people who are not wealthy and white and male. And which means that Nate Silver's third option, bigoted, bingo, you got it. So at what point are we going to just acknowledge this? I mean, it took the press weeks after Trump got sworn into office to start using the word lies. How long before they start using the word bigoted? I'm, get, I'm betting that they are not going to because they're afraid that Republicans will start refusing to show up for their weekend talk shows and things. And then the ratings will go down and the networks will be in trouble and they'll lose money. And you know, But how long do you think it's going to be? And do you think that it's, you know, you think I've got a, a, a good theory here or is this just crazy that Trump's primary motivation is bigotry? This is the Tom Hartman program. Or is he super slick and he's just shouting out to an electorate? whose primary motivation is bigotry. Hey, everybody's talking about superfoods, those nutritionally dense foods that are especially beneficial to your health. Did you know that one of the most powerful superfoods you can put into your body is beets? They're loaded with an important nutrient that increases your blood flow, which increases your energy. But who wants to eat a pile of beets every day? Not me. But now you can get the energy benefits of beets in a powerful, concentrated superfood drink, Super Beets. Only Super Beets is made from beets grown to exacting standards, then concentrated into superfood crystals. Super Beets promotes the body's own natural ability to produce healthier circulation for increased energy and stamina all day long. So if you want the benefits of a powerful superfood, call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeets.com. With your first order, get another 30-day supply of Super Beats for free, plus indicator strips to see how Super Beats is working for you, and free shipping. So call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today. That's 800-568-9889, tomsbeats.com on the interwebs. Sean, there we go. Thank you. Uh, is Donald Trump a bigot or is he merely playing one on television? Right. Is he is this what he's doing to activate his base? Is this this has been the core of of a second and third tier Republican political strategy since the Nixon administration. Bring in the racists. Right. Nixon called it the Southern strategy, which was let's flip the South from Democratic to Republican by becoming the party of white racism, which Democrats used to be the party of white racism in the South. And Republicans pulled that off. They are now officially the party of white racism in the South. And they've got a lot of white people in the South supporting them. Is that really what it's all about? So anyhow, a lot on the, on the table here. Your thoughts, George in Chicago. Hey, George, what's on your mind? Uh, hi, Tom. Um, hey, George. There was a story on WCPT earlier today that the great, the formerly great retailer known as Sears Roebuck is severing its 100-year relationship with Whirlpool Corporation because the current negotiations with Whirlpool uh, presented a deal to Sears from Whirlpool that was economically infeasible for Sears to sign on to. So they will continue to sell their own Kenmore brand, and they'll sell foreign brands like LG, but uh, no more Whirlpool. And this is in connection with your discussion earlier with Julio, who I refer to as Julio, but... Uh, be that as it may, um, the set point for American business when it comes to wages is maximum work for the least amount of pay. And wherever those two lines cross, you find slavery. And if our minimum wage is only half of a living wage, that means a minimum wage worker is a slave for 20 hours a week. Back in the day when Sears was the premier retailer in this country, and we had <clears throat> over 25% of the workforce unionized, people had the money to buy top-of-the-line appliances at stores like Sears. 
Right. Now Sears has been beaten into the ground like Kmart has and Montgomery Ward and Spiegel and so many other legacy retailers that don't exist anymore. And uh, the monster is Walmart, which is aggressively non-union, as opposed to those companies which were union who paid a living wage. Right. So Julio ought to think about all these things. That... <clears throat> that what used to be the gold standard of American retailing is no longer going to carry a top brand of American appliances because they can't afford it anymore. Is Whirlpool still made in the United States? I'm sorry? Is Whirlpool still made in the United States? Well, they're headquartered in uh, in Michigan. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that they're making anything there. I you know, I, I don't know. It's uh, I, I don't know the answer to the question. Um, but yeah, and there was not only was there a time when workers could could buy high end appliances, but there was a time when appliances, when they were made in the United States, were actually well made. I mean, the 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 boat that we lived in for the last five years in in Washington D.C. I still have it in in Washington D.C. and it, it was made in 1986. The original refrigerator is in there. It died last month. And, you know, 30 years. That refrigerator lasted 30 years. The original washer and dryer are in there, still working 30 years later. And uh, they're 31 years, I guess now. And, and uh, you know, we just don't make stuff like that anymore. And, and we don't import stuff like that anymore, unless it's coming from, from the European manufacturers, and it's the real high-end, all stainless steel stuff, you know, like that. And, and yeah, the, the, this, is, this is the new business model. The new business model is make it disposable, get it from a foreign country, you make, you know, make profits for that country. Don't protect our workers by protecting our, our, our borders, essentially. And I'm not talking about immigration. I'm talking about goods coming across our borders with or without tariffs or VAT taxes or whatever. And, and uh, this kind of an economy is not one that works. It's just, you know, I, it's, it's, it's fairly, fairly straightforward. George, thanks for the call. Well said. Andrew in Moultrie, Georgia. Hey, Andrew, what's on your mind? Yes, Tom, I just like to talk. You know, I'm, you know I've heard the last call. I uh, was talking about what Democrats not doing. You know, that's why we got what we have right now, because the Democratic Party is so divided. And when you divide it, what can you accomplish anything? It can't, you, you can't never accomplish anything if you let someone like the Republican Party to divide you and talk this junk. Even when Barack Obama was in office, they didn't do not one thing. They didn't create one job. They sat there for eight years and didn't do not one thing to help this man. But don't nobody want to say anything about that. But I tell you this, if they keep on being divided, they're going to keep getting just what they're getting right now. They're going to keep getting just what they're getting right now. They deserve it. Although he didn't win, but the Electoral College gave it to him. But we got to be more smarter than what we are. We got to start getting our act together. We got to, to pull together. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you, Andrew. And I would say, in order to do that, you need a set of core principles. You need, you need a, an absolute agreement on here's who we are and what we're all about. And if we want to do that, I would suggest that we go back to FDR's, not just his four freedoms, but also his second Bill of Rights, and the whole New Deal and the Great Society, and say, this is the Democratic Party. Andrew, thank you for the call. Well said. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Interesting. I don't have a lot of people who want to weigh in on whether or not Trump's a bigot. I'm, I'm guessing that must be there's a consensus. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Boy, some some amazing, you know, viral memes I'm seeing in my Twitter feed here. It's just incredible. There are 1,566 churches in Houston. They are all tax exempt so that they can help the needy, right? Only 60, 60, 4%, 60 out of 1,566 churches in Houston have opened their doors to help the flood victims and the needy during Hurricane Harvey. Uh, This is is absolutely fascinating. Some of these minimum wages around the world in U.S. dollars, Denmark, $21 an hour, Australia, $15.81 an hour, Germany, $11 an hour. Actually, I don't believe Germany has a minimum wage. I think it's it's so heavily unionized that, you know, it just, it doesn't matter. Uh, The United States, $7.25 an hour. Since 1978, the cost of college tuition has increased by 1,120 percent. 
Medical care has increased by 601%. Food has increased by 244%. The source of this is occupied Democrats. Shelter has gone up 380%, the cost of housing. That's since 1978. Meanwhile, just before Reagan, meanwhile, the pay of typical workers went up just by 10%. Minimum wage workers, their pay actually fell by 5.5%. And the average CEO, well, they got a pay raise of 937%. So, and then looking back fondly on the Reagan years, this is, this is great. This is from uh, topplebush.com. Looking back fondly on the Reagan years, Iran-Contra Iran scandal, 14 convictions, decisions being made by Nancy's astrologer, who I actually happen to know. It's a long story. Anyway, a HUD scandal with 16 convictions, $8 billion in taxpayer money lost. The SNL scandal, over a trillion dollars in cost to taxpayers. 32 convictions in his administration during an eight-year term. He was The Reagan administration was the most corrupt in terms of prosecutions and convictions, the most corrupt presidency in the history of the United States. The average unemployment rate during Reagan's presidency was 7.5%. He brought us voodoo economics, supply-side economics. He wasted billions on Star Wars, escalated the arms race, which delayed reductions in nuclear weapons. He destroyed the labor movement. And at least 130 separate different investigations were conducted against the Defense Department's largest contractors. This is, this is such a hoot, you know. Hello, America. I'm Ronald Reagan, a Republican Tea Party legend. I was caught supplying weapons to our murderous regimes twice. I caved into the demands of terrorists twice. I provided the funding to create the terrorist organization that would later be known as Al-Qaeda. I supported the racist apartheid in South Africa. 138 members of my administration were investigated, indicted, or convicted of crimes. I tripled the national debt in only eight years. I robbed the Social Security Trust Fund to pay for budget shortfalls. Thank you for voting Republican. That also from Occupy Democrats. Why is Denmark the happiest country in the world? Free childcare, free healthcare, free university, $20 minimum wage, 33-hour work week. Could have something to do with it. Could have something to do with it. In New Mexico, they are coming up with new standards for their textbooks. These are based on what are called the next generation science standards. But the New Mexicans would like to make some changes to the next generation science standards, which is a set of standards for, you know, at a, a federal level. And uh, 60 scientists associated with Los Alamos uh, National Laboratories are really fried about this. They took out a full page ad in the, uh, in the Santa Fe paper of record, the New Mexican. And they said there's absolutely no scientific rationale for weakening the treatment of these su subjects in New Mexico K-12 education. Now, what are the subjects? What is it that New Mexico is doing that has 60 of the state's top scientists buying a full-page ad in the biggest state, in the newspaper in the state? Well, every place where there are standards in government documents that refer to global temperatures... The words rise or change have been replaced with the word fluctuations. No more talk about climate change. No more talk about temperature rise or, or you know, global climate uh, you know, rise. It's all fluctuations, number one. Number two, where in the science text, it points out that the Earth's rocks have been dated. The Earth itself has been dated to an age of around 5 billion years, 4.6 billion to be precise. They delete that 4.6 billion and replace it with the word geologic history, or the phrase geologic history. Why? Because there may be some bizarre cultists out there who believe the world is only 6,000 years old, and the Republicans want to pander to them. And finally, a standard dealing with the process of evolution. This is from uh, Stephen Sawchuck uh, over at... Um, I believe this is the education's weekly blog, uh, Curriculum Matters. So I don't have a, oh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, curriculum, yeah, this is Curriculum Matters is the name of the source. Okay. So a standard dealing with the process of evolution deletes that word entirely. The word evolution has been, or they're proposing to remove it, remove the word evolution entirely from, from those textbooks of New Mexico students. Entirely. 
and instead ask students to construct an explanation based on evidence the biological diversity is, quote, influenced by, end quote, things like competition for limited resources, the proliferation of organisms that are better equipped to survive, and genetic variations in species. In other words, the, the core organizing principles of evolution, we'll acknowledge a few of those, but we can't use the word evolution because there's these people who call themselves Christian fundamentalists who apparently know nothing about the teachings of Jesus that, that do not want you to be teaching science in the New Mexico schools. West Virginia is flirting with this and Wyoming as well. West Virginia has softened their standards about global climate change. Wyoming also flirted with some changes before adopting its own set of science standards. Its final set asked students to consider the positives and negatives of climate change. What are the positives? The disruption of governments? I don't know. And South Dakota, among other changes, also deleted the standard referencing the age of the earth. We don't need to know how old the earth is. We don't need to know civics. We don't need to know science. We're stupid Americans, right? Where do we go with this? I mean, what kind of country are they trying to turn us into? One of our uh, regular listeners, and I'd have to, my apologies, I'd have to scroll back down through the uh, Twitter feed to find it here. Uh, and yeah, I'm not finding it quickly. But anyhow, she tweeted, she tweeted uh, the Catholic, the principles of Catholic social teaching. This is from a Catholic website. And at Catholic Charities, as Catholic Charities agencies, we serve all who come to our doors for aid, not because they're Catholic, but because we are. Our mission is rooted in the seven principles of Catholic social teaching listed below. Life and the dignity of the human person, call to family, community, and participation, rights and responsibilities, option for the poor and vulnerable. And then the issue that I was debating with Julio, the dignity of work and the rights of workers. The economy, now keep in mind, this, this is Catholic teachings. This is the official Catholic doctrine. The economy must serve people, not the other way around. It's the first sentence. Remember my question to Julio, why do we have an economy? We, the people, the government of the United States, we the people, we created an economy, why? To serve the people. Not to serve the billionaires, not to serve the corporate overlords, not to serve the big television networks. It's to serve we the people. So Catholic teachings, the economy must serve the people, not the other way around. Work is more than a way to make a living, is a form of continuing participation in God's creation. If the dignity of work is to be protected, then the basic rights of workers must be respected. The right to productive work, to decent and fair wages, to joining unions, to private property and economic initiative. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Economies are here to serve us, not the other way around.